What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome to Evidence Elevates. I'm Parm Padgett and a member of the Moving Forward Task Force. This episode is the second of a two-part series taken from our recent Educators Town Hall. In this episode, you will hear the panelists respond to questions posed by the audience. The first episode focused on background information provided by the panelists. If you haven't listened to that, we encourage you to do so. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much. My name is Hallie Zalesnik, and I am the co-chair of the Moving Forward Task Force. So first, um, thanks to our entire panel for being willing to do this tonight. I think you you guys shared some really great nuggets of information and coming from the diverse backgrounds and experiences. Um, I think it's really helpful. I did see as our presenters were presenting that several questions came through about the NPT exam as it relates not just to PTs, but what about board exams for PTAs as well? And there was some nice um, conversation in the chat that seemed to have answered that question, that PTA is likely kind of following similar um, guidance as the PT and, and the NPTE exam. So the link was posted um, to that as well. So coming down into some of the questions that are entering, so go ahead and enter them um, as you guys are able. Um, there's a question and I'm wondering, I think uh, Patty, you might be able to answer this one. In the curriculums in which you have all changed, are the students learning about PNF and any other coursework related to other health conditions specific to MSK or returning to sport, or has PNF been removed completely from the program itself? Yeah, th this was similar to a question that was submitted uh, prior to the, so we had a little conversation about it, and I shared that uh, in in past years, I, I was invited to come into the orthopedic courses and teach PNF uh, for more of a strengthening approach. But as I started to, um, you know, uh, think about my own course and think about where that where that fit, um, I wasn't really keeping up on PNF and, and anything related to related to that. And so I talked to the orthopedic more skeletal faculty and encouraged them if they if they felt like that was important to include in the orthopedic curriculum, then they could teach it, and I provided them with the resources that I had, and um, and I honestly don't know if it's if it's continued to be taught there. Um, I think you know they found value in the in the diagonal patterns, for example, for a shoulder rehab. Um, but I, I honestly don't know if if the the rest of the framework of PNF for the lower extremity patterns, for example, are taught or taught in the same way. Um, Again, I, I think that's a choice that for the people who are responsible for that content, that you know, they they can make that choice as far as uh, what's a priority for for those those types of patients. Thanks so much. Another question um, from Amanda to the group: How do we keep a common language if PNF and NDT are not taught because they've been the common language for so long? If someone can take that. 
I'll go ahead and comment. Um, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a good question. Uh, but I think that you know what I tried to to help to get my students to do was to describe what they were doing. So take for example PNF techniques of alternating isometrics and rhythmic stabilization. I think those two techniques have merit as strengthening. They are resisted techniques, and they can be done for strengthening purposes. But alternating, but what I said to them is to me, alternating isometrics and rhythmic stabilization doesn't tell me anything. But if we said something along the lines of resisted flexion and extension of the trunk in sitting with resistance at the shoulders, that's much more descriptive. And so I focused in on kind of trying to help students think about, well, how can they, how can they word things? And so for example, um, a non-PNF trained PT might do that same sort of thing, but as a way to work on strengthening or maybe a way to work on balance perturbations. And I so I think using more descriptive language and trying to be really clear in communication is key. Perfect. Thanks. And still on kind of the similar topic, um, um, somebody had asked if PNF and NDT um, introduced to DPT students in the pediatric curriculum in your programs. I believe it's not PNF, but NDT is introduced in a pediatric course, um, but it's also the the functional approach task specific training is definitely emphasized in a much stronger, stronger degree. Uh, but I don't know if anyone else has comments on that. That's that's what I know about peds. Yeah, I, I would say um, I believe I don't teach the pediatric content either, but I believe it takes a similar um, approach in that I I don't uh, think, I guess the, the theme that I've heard just from talking with the panelists here too, is not that we wanna hide that it's uh, a technique that occurred in the past. So my understanding too is, you know, having that, that foundation of what it is and how um, it can, they can help with the developmental sequence, but the focus on function is where our program has gone, I guess. And so um, I, I think where we run into trouble is if we were not open with students about NDT did exist and is a treatment approach that's out there that they may hear about, but empowering them to speak to why they're focusing on the functional component of it. So that's my understanding. Um, it's not that it's not that it's completely, I guess, in our program at least um, ignored, especially in the pediatric realm. Thanks, everyone. Uh, another question, how do you communicate with clinical instructors so that they know what to expect in terms of students' knowledge or lack thereof of PNF, since there is still a good number of PTs who are PNF diehards? And do you prepare students to expect treatment techniques that they may not have learned about in school? So I think it, the question is both ways. How do you prepare CIs for what the students come out learning? And then how do you prepare students that they still may see some things in the clinic that they haven't learned? For reasons. So I, I can start. Um, just to piggyback off of what Heather was just talking about, again, I, I think that's why providing this historical perspective is so critically important. Um, you know, you might hear about these techniques, people are still using them, but we're going to focus on function. Um, and so I think just having that really honest conversation and pr providing this kind of groundwork allows students to ask questions and also to have kind of a conversation with a CI in the clinic. Um, I certainly think that 
we make students aware that they might see things in the clinic that they haven't necessarily talked about in school or that there might be different language surrounding things that they see in the clinic versus what they see in school. Um, but I, I'd be anxious or curious to hear what others have to say about that. I would agree. I was going to add, I like to use the analogy now related to the pandemic, like practices changing and we're not going to be able to anticipate everything. And um, they're going to have to be prepared to see some new things in the clinic and they're going to see diagnosis that uh, we can't cover every specialty diagnosis either. And so the pandemic is just an amplified version of that where there is a whole new health condition we didn't have before. Um, and so kind of having that conversation too, that they need to be adaptable and willing to learn new things. And then also have the clinical reasoning to reinforce why they're doing what they're doing. You use the word adaptability, Heather, and that's what I was saying. We, we really emphasize adaptability as one of the um, key pieces when they're in ICE courses and then in clin ed and kind of just being able to be exposed to new things and then take it into the context of what they've learned and, and move on. In addition to the other ways they have to be adaptable just to clinical practice. Thanks, everyone. The next question, kind of going back to the NPTE with the new content outline, has mentioned the impact of regenerative medicine on PT diagnosis and interventions. Will there be um, discussion about best resources to include this information in neuro courses? And an additional person um, commented on that. They'd love to talk about it or hear more about it. Seems like something we can collaborate on and perhaps something that ANPT can help provide starter resources. So there are some board of director members on our call tonight. So I'm sure that they will take note of the ask for that, but I don't know if the panel has anything that they'd like to add or, or comment on with regenerative medicine. I mean, my sense is, is that and I'm trying to reflect back because, you know, back to um, the recent step, the most recent step conference, there are resources, part of that was on plasticity. And so there are resources available on the AMPT website, including some free uh, programming in the, in the um, learning center. So you might want to, you could look there for starters, but I agree that that's, I think with, with the changes in the NPTE um, and the content outline, we're going to need to, to make some continued changes in content. So something else is going to have to go. Perfect. Uh, another question, as faculty in an accelerated program, can the panel share how many credits or contact hours they have to teach their neuro content, if you're allowed to do that? I can do that. Um, I'm in an accelerated program. I'm responsible for developing the curriculum, and I'm currently working on that. We have a two-part uh, neuro practice management course um, that is focused on adults. We also have a separate course on movement science. We have other courses on lifespan for both pediatrics and aging adults. Each of our uh, two um, each each of our two uh, neuro practice management courses are um, oh gosh I think it's five credits each or seven credits each I think uh, I don't know um, you can email me Kirsten.potter at tufts.edu it's either five or seven I was working on it today and I've forgotten I'm sorry but it's in that ballpark um, about ten to twelve credits total we have lecture and lab. 12 credit, two, six, two large six credit courses, Neuro, we have one and Neuro, we have two, or as we like to call it, NeuroFabulous neuro 1 and NeuroFabulous 2. Um, and then that's not, pediatrics is separate. And, um, you know, they have other other lifespan type courses that are that are separate. But the Neuro, we have contents, 12 credits in our program. Great. 
Um, another question, can you speak about what types of activities have replaced the traditional content that has been removed? We use a combination of case studies in student instructor modeling, but can always use new ideas. I like the, the words remove and replace. Those are um, kind of the four R's of de-implementation. So I don't know if anyone can talk about what you've replaced that content with. I can give some uh, just examples of what we've done. Um, we have an introductory lab that's a motor learning lab where they're actually teaching each other some skills. So we have uh, students teaching each other gymnastics and arts and crafts and all different things. And so we're using the language of motor learning and guidance and feedback and setting up practice session and something that's kind of familiar to them, playing a musical instrument, those types of things. Um, and then we do a lot of, uh, we have a, a, a lab on transfers and a lab on uh, gait and a lab on upper extremity. So it's all function oriented. Um, with the case studies and um, and students are role playing and you know kind of as best they can acting out those those different scenarios. At the same time, they're in ice, and so we're encouraging them to you know think about those those movement um, approaches and those task training approaches as they're observing in the clinic and working towards um, activities where towards the end of the the two credit sequence, we're having simulated patients. Um, uh, that are more realistic uh, role play for uh, for the for the practice sessions and the assessments. And there's another question right after that, also about labs too. So whether you want to expand or if someone else wants to jump in, um, when you have made changes to your labs, how do you structure that? Is it diagnosis specific, and what might be unique to that diagnosis or task specific? And do you bring in actual patients? So there's another good lab question here. So um, both. Yes, all of the above. Um, obviously, you know, we do our best to connect the students to uh, people who are living with neurologic conditions so that they can see it in real time. But there's also a lot of uh, challenges around that as well. So we actually do a lot of role playing as well to make the case based application more accessible for us, as well as we have a large cohort of 80 students. So that allows us to um, I guess, create more simulation opportunities um, without the burden of, of having to do a ton of recruiting. So um, we, do, we do all of the above. I would say another strategy um, that we've utilized, and this also goes back to maybe one of the pre-submitted um, questions about when you don't have a lot of equipment, uh, what can we do to help the students get creative and uh, think about exercise progression and regression. So that's one thing as we've taken out a lot of these um, specific handling skills, it's, you know, how can you scale the intervention for somebody who's really high functioning versus someone who needs more physical assistance and, and trying to stretch their creativity that way. And then also reinforcing saliency. So not only can you stretch the intervention, but now can you make it meaningful for the patient? and reinforce those concepts for the students. Um, and we also, and uh, my colleague Jennifer Furs is here today, so I have to give her credit. Uh, we collaborated one year on like, how can we get students to really take home? You're gonna have to physically help this patient, you know, the max assisted to patient. Um, we actually went out and secured a bunch of 60 pound sandbags and now make students try to help transfer each other while they uh, their partner holds a 60 pound sandbag. And so it kind of simulates that uh, it's really hard to actually help with the transfer when you're holding the 60 pound sandbag. Um, I think one year we put balloons on it too to simulate lack of head control and things like that so that they had to 
kind of think of some of those, like how could they mobilize people in those ways? Um, but, you know, adding weights and, and things that can challenge the person who's role-playing. Um, so, so yeah, getting creative and encouraging the students to get creative. Like how can you create interventions that model the activity that the, the patient wants to do, um, whether it's gardening or working on cars or whatever. So that's what we really tried to, I guess, implement in when we replaced. And Kirsten, did you want to also comment on that one? You know, I, I was just going to briefly comment that I think part of the way to manage it is just to be mindful of those patients that we most commonly see in practice. You know, just like we can't teach, uh, you know, every technique under the sun or every approach under the sun, we also can't teach every diagnosis. So focus on those things that are most important. You know, I spent the majority of my time on stroke, MS, Parkinson's, brain injury, spinal cord injury, um, vestibular, and touched on a couple others, but the bulk of the content was in those diagnoses. And I, I also didn't teach, the course was not structured around, and I don't view patients this way, how do, I how do I treat a patient with stroke? How do I treat a patient with MS? How do I treat someone with Parkinson's? But it was, how do I treat patients with these movement problems? And so, you know, I kind of developed a, a framework that we used for patients with cortical problems that resulted in specific movement deficits. And so we didn't get bogged down too much in the specific diagnosis, other than in terms of prognosis and goal setting to some degree. And that sort of helped open up some space and helps students see the connections between different patient uh, diagnoses and how they might be managed similarly in some cases. Great, thanks. There is a question um, from someone who's still using the NDT for the, the handling, basically, the, you know, to learn how to hands-on. And I know, Kirsten, you talked a little bit about your strategy with that, um, but they're wondering if there are any other resources for teaching neurohandling that aren't that NDT framework. I don't know of any, um, you know, I really took the approach of going back to my using your hands wisely was to think about, and what I would tell my students is, and my patients when I was treating is, you know, the way I see my, my, my job is that I'm going to allow my patient to move to whatever degree that they can. And then I'll fill in the gap. And so flexibility was really key in terms of when I used my hands and how I used my hands, if I used them at all. And so, you know, I didn't get real picky with students about how and when they were using their hands as long as it was effective. And if it wasn't effective, that was okay. My expectation was that they noticed it and were able to adapt. And so I really said, you know, we all have different body sizes and shapes as do our patients. And so they're going to need to be adaptable, uh, going back to that word adaptability again. And so that was the approach I took and that seemed to work. Heather, go ahead. I think this is sort of what that question is getting at, but uh, we have framed ours, I guess, in, a, in the movement analysis task uh, framework that was originally proposed by Hedman et al. a while ago and is also in the more recent um, publication that came out by the Movement System Task Force. So, um, and what I, th I think for me, what's helpful about that is, for example, you can think about how the environment might impact the different components um, of movement. So, you know, in that initial condition, can I, can I set up the environment differently to help them be more um, effective in that task at the stand or whatever the task is, um, and kind of utilizing that movement system, movement analysis framework, I guess, to analyze movement and then see uh, you know, how you can impact it, whether it's the environment 
or the individual, right? Or the task that you're that you're working on itself. So I think that's the the framework that we've utilized the most. I don't know if that helps with regards to the language around um, PNF or NDT, but if if needing a framework for movement has been helpful to clarify the language around like what is the primary movement problem for your patient and analyzing that movement and then hopefully developing an intervention that addresses that movement problem. I do think that framework has been helpful from that standpoint and creating clarity between educator student. Um, so just a thought. Perfect. Um, so another question that came through is, does anyone have any opinions or what best practice looks like for practical exams that assess task-specific training to improve gait? Tappen et al. 2020 outlined a process they used in developing a checklist-style rubric for assessing vestibular eval and treatment skills, wondering if anyone has any similar references for practicals that emphasize best evidence for walking. I wish something like that existed. <laughs> For, for all of us, I think that would be great to have something that's published. I mean, we I have a, a practical exam that emphasizes uh, function and it, students have to uh, uh, show that they can develop an intervention that's appropriate for that patient that's in front of them and be, you know, demonstrate adaptability with their handling and with their feedback and with their practice um, session. And it's not perfect, but, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to... Again, I, their rubric actually grades them on their ability to be adaptable. And so I expect that they'll either make mistakes or, or be inefficient or, or design a task that's too hard or too easy. And then they have to, you know, modify it just like as you would. Um, and if that doesn't happen as we're watching the practical play out, then we prompt them with questions and say, what if this was too easy for the patient or et cetera. And so really trying to emphasize that. Um, rather than focusing on where their hands are. But, you know, of course, safety is important, but really why are they, you know, I'd love Kristen's use hand wisely. Are they using their hands wisely? Are they getting in the way? Are they letting, you know, it play out and kind of just trying to um, to watch that? But if, man, if there was a published practical rubric on doing this with with not just vestibular patients, but with patients with neurologic diagnosis, I'd be, I'd be, I'd read that. I'd be all over that. The way we structured our uh, intervention uh, practical exam was that the students got a case. It was a very brief description of a patient and it listed the patient's goal. And the expectation that the, was that the student would go in, introduce themselves, talk about the role of PT, and then ask the patient to perform that skill. And so the student would have to be adaptable to figure out, does that patient need help or can they observe and guard, but uh, let the patient do the movement themselves. And they also took a brief history to better understand what the patient's uh, concerns were um, and how their recovery was going so far. And then they had to, on the spot, come up with a treatment plan uh, to address that task. So it was very focused around your patient wants to improve the ability to move from you know supine to sitting today. And they had to develop a treatment plan and execute it. And so it required a lot of really good clinical decision-making sort of on the spot. Um, there was some component of uh, safety in, in 
every single case. So students had to guard. Um, at times, patients needed, you know, the simulated patients, and we brought in role players who were clinicians. Um, this, at times, the simulated patients needed significant assistance. Other times, they needed significant challenge. Um, and so, or they always needed some, but they were more free to move. And so, it really um, was, I thought, a good example of how they might um, serve as, you know, doing a coverage for a patient in a clinical, for example. Thanks so yeah, much. Oh, sorry. I just want to add, I mean, we're, we're trying to follow the conversation on competency-based education and really, you know, move our practicals in that direction as well. So I just wanted to kind of notice that. And it sounds like Kristen and I have a similar approach to, you know, thinking about what were the competencies that we're looking for with our students and, and setting the rubric up and using as realistic as possible actors or, you know, clinicians who are able to act in, in a better way than, than, um, than they, they don't typically act that realistic for each other. Perfect. And so there, there's another comment. We are getting close to time here, but there was another comment that I just had, and now I've lost it. Oh, Kathy. Kathy had asked, how are the ANPT movement systems task forces for task analysis and balance promoting change in our frameworks for task-specific training and how we teach neurointerventions? Um, we're movement system specialists. We need to teach students to analyze tasks and skills and, and critical movement components that are limiting skill and function, guiding directed interventions and motor learning. Um, I also know that they just named those task forces very recently, so that's very exciting. And we are going to pass this information on to the colleagues that were named to that because I think it's a valid question. And I think that's something we always struggle with with the task forces is trying to address needs for educators and clinicians as well. So sometimes um, it ends up being a lot, but that's really great comments that we'll pass on. Some of those folks are also on the call today. Um, so with that, we are going to end the question and answer. We do have some final slides and comments that Lauren's going to wrap us up with. So I will turn it back to Lauren. And I think, thank you, all the slides are coming up. I just, um, I took some notes myself about what people were saying. So as the campaign, we are Super excited for the feedback we've gotten because it's helped us to develop the resources we have today. So it kind of leads me into, you know, this just one picture to put up for you here. Um, we had this discussion tonight about the history of our profession and the history is so important. And we recognize that. And I think we heard from several people, how do we show students and how in education do we show our history, but also show this, this idea is not of de-implementation is not new, right? We've had, we've been removing things, we've been doing need to do more of something and less of something else over time. And that's evolved. And so that conversation should evolve with it. So um, so change is good. And that means we're learning and growing. And so this is just one resource we developed for educators. And this, and I saw uh, something pop up about can handouts be shared. This and um, other resources are all available on the ANPT website under our practice resources in the Evidence Elevates campaign. And um, we have many other things to support your change, um, including an evidence pyramid, some uh, simple substitutions for clinicians. So I think that spoke to a lot of what people asked tonight of, what do I do differently? And there are ideas of instead of this, do this. So just to give you some tangible strategies, we have nine podcasts which talk about every, um, every group um, who has spoken here tonight and give a lot of different perspectives. Um, we have an, a letter to the editor and really more to come. And when I think about more to come, um, one thing that, that came out tonight, these approaches and the different language you need, um, that's something that we really are trying to help with. So even we were saying, well, how do I say how to do this? Um, we talked about using hands wisely or just some simple things of assist as needed. 
And we, of course, we assist as needed. We put our hands on when someone needs that help, and then we take them off when they don't. And the exact way and hand position and perfection of it is not what we're looking for. It's that we help them as they need, and then we move off from it. Um, or even someone talked about approaches, um, what approach they use. And, and a colleague on this call always talks about, we use the approach, Heather talked about movement, but a biomechanical approach. I watch someone move and I think, what do they need? My hands are on their, close to their pelvis because that's where their center of mass is, not because they're in a certain position. So I think using those things um, from that task perspective are helpful. And I think the, we will continue to take your feedback and continue this conversation um, in, in further developing resources for you. So as, um, as you see, we're, we're listed here on the bottom, there is more to come. Our, our task force has been diligently working and taking these ideas and will continue to do so. So please keep them coming. Um, we'll, we'll go back to the chat and see what you had said here tonight and, um, and hope to support you. But really thank you for everyone who joined, for um, all our presenters and our panelists who your perspective was so valuable. Um, so different yet unique in, in how in how you are all moving the practice forward as well. And um, and to everyone for your great questions and your collaboration, um, such a pleasure and thanks so much for your time and participation. And thank you for listening to the second podcast in our two-part series taken from the recent Educators Town Hall. We would once again like to thank Dr. Nora Fritz, Dr. Kirsten Potter, Dr. Patricia Cluding, and Dr. Heather Knight. Please check out resources referred to during this podcast at our website at neuropt.org. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.